there was one other thing I was going to tell all of you as an encouragement. Um, my oldest son, Wyatt, who's a student over here at UA Fort Smith, is um, involved in the leadership of the Cub Camp. He and one of our other uh, Lions for Christ students are doing that as, as a kind of an outreach. He just told me today, he said, I've heard more conversation amongst that group about Lions for Christ and West Ark than I've heard in a long time. So what we're doing here is, is getting recognized, and I want to thank you for being a part of that. So if you'll read with me in 1 John 3. I'm going to read from the uh, NIV. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in them purify themselves just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appears, appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Those who are born of God will not continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They can't go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Those who do not do what is right are not God's children, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. Now, before we get caught up in that business about those who go on sinning, you're thinking, wait a second, I, I'm trying not to sin, and I do. Just set that aside right now. Because you, you have to get all of this from the very beginning, and the very beginning is wonderful. I mean, you've got this little lesson about sin and lawlessness and righteousness, and <clears throat> that can sound very uh, harsh and very you know, strong, but you have to see how he opens the message. He opens the message with this idea of lavishing. Last week, uh, Don Griffin and I were talking about that, and he gave me the definition of lavish is what you do with icing on cake. And I was trying to remember that this week, and I thought, no, it's syrup on pancakes. It's sprinkles on ice cream. It's, you know, we get this idea. And by the, the pancake one, though, Don, is working for me because, um, see, I put peanut butter on my pancakes. Yeah, and if you don't like that, that's tough. You're not eating the pancakes. They're mine. We've always done that. I thought that was the normal, ordinary thing to do. That's one of those family of origin issues when Karen and I uh, were, you know, just 
for starting to meet each other's family, I go to her grandparents' house, and they had pancakes, and I said, do you have peanut butter? And Karen was like, peanut butter, what are you doing? And then her grandfather goes, oh, yeah, I love peanut butter on my pancakes. Uh, my wife hadn't let me have peanut butter on my pancakes in a long time. Get that peanut butter. Let's put peanut butter on the pancakes. I was in. I was in. But if you put peanut butter on your pancakes, you've got to have a lot of syrup. And by the way, if you go out to Oregon, they, you go out there in the pancake houses and you say, do you have peanut butter? Of course we have peanut butter. Yes. You've got to put a lot of syrup on it, though. So you've got to lavish that syrup on there. I like NIV here because they use that word lavish. Some, some of your translations will say, behold what manner of love the Father has given well, given is, doesn't, doesn't, you know, have any kind of color to it. It's just, you know, give me the book, give me the keys, give me your love. Okay, it's all the same, you know, it's give. It's just a simple, bland. It's kind of like putting butter on your pancakes. It's just bland. Lavish has some flavor. Lavish tells you that this is a lot. Now, the only way you can get away with, with uh, given is if you... Um, They've got this song that they sing, and I've only heard it in the Caribbean, okay? When I went on one of the uh, Partners in Progress medical trips back in the 80s to St. Vincent, they started singing this song, and it's based on this verse. And it goes, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. And then there's like a little round, you know, like row, row, row your boat, where they start singing it, and then they sing it in groups. And it's beautiful. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God, that we should be called the sons of God. And they just share that song back and forth. And, and after you hear that song a couple of times and all the different groups are singing it, you're thinking, you know, this is what it might feel like to really consider yourself a child of God. But I've recognized something since those years is that it's not my default to really think of myself as God's child. Child of God may be an ornamental word that I use, and I don't know what your experience is, but I want you to think this through with me. Because if, if, if you share with me in this default, then, like me, we need to adjust it, okay? Because we have a very rugged, individualistic faith. Sometimes I think we see ourselves not so much as uh, God's children, but we're, um, we're kind of uh, God's associates. Or, you know, we're his, you know, I mean, it's a good thing that we're handling the Lord's money because he doesn't know what to do with it. You know, we're taking good care of the Lord's money because he just doesn't know what to do with all of his dollars and cents. Next thing you know, he just might go lavishing them all over the place. When we have that rugged individual spirit, uh, everything is focused on being an adult. In our society, in our culture, it's about growing up, being mature, getting off on your own, being independent. And so to think of yourself as a child is counterintuitive to us. I tend to think of myself, and these are all good terms, as a Christian, as a disciple, as maturing in Christ. I like all of those phrases, and I like what they mean, and they are biblical. It has to do with improvement, with growth, with wisdom, with betterment, and all of those things are biblical. And actually, the idea of being righteous and being mature comes up in this text. But being a child means so much more than simply being childish and dependent. 
it changes how we see ourselves. Uh, the trip that I took to Nicaragua back in the 90s, we were, um, we were meeting people in the community and, and uh, people in the church there. And really, the, 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 the aim of that, and, and they've, they've become very successful over, with this over the last few years. And uh, the person I went with was Manuel Centeno, who's up here at the Pleasant Valley Church of Christ in Van Buren. And they were going to plant churches. Well, we met, uh, or I was speaking to a young woman who was working at the hotel that we were staying at. And uh, she, had, she, she spoke great English. And she was telling me her story about the things that she wanted to do and the things that she wanted to accomplish. And I was very... I was trying to be encouraging. I was a campus minister then. I was trying to be encouraging, saying, yes, get your education. Do all the things. You know, better yourself. Find ways to improve yourself. That's great. And she said, you know, it's going to be hard to do without the funds and the resources. But she says, hey, I've got a father, and you know what? He owns all the cattle on these hills, and he owns all the gold in these mountains. And my first inclination, I, I'm not lying, was to think, then why doesn't your father write you a check and start funding some of this? And then it dawned on me, she's talking about God. She's calling herself God's daughter. She's calling herself God's child. And again, it, it, it pointed out to me how independent I can be, that I can talk faith in God, child of God, we have a father, and then I've got to go do it myself. And it's just a tendency that infects us because of our culture and because of our society and because we don't ever want to be a burden or we don't ever want to cause problems. And so somehow we get this idea that we're supposed to take care of everything ourselves and then God just sits back and hands out little stickers to us whenever we do a good job. She had the right idea, which was understanding that anything that she's been given, anything that she does, anything she accomplishes, anything that she will accomplish is because her heavenly Father is blessing her because she has the wonderful privilege of being his child. And this is the amazing fact that John is bringing out. He's saying, isn't this wonderful? That God has lavished his love on us. How do we know that? Because we can be called the children of God. And so he starts this, this section out with a, um, with a, with a, a word of praise. Uh, it's, it's, with that behold. Uh, now, NIV didn't include that. It just says see. But, but here this idea is, you know, hey, behold, look at this. Here's something. It's a point to be made. What great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. This is an issue of identity. Since the beginning of this year, we have been preaching and teaching sermons and lessons on identity. We've been talking about our foundation in Christ. Here is one of those foundational statements. Our identity is found in identifying ourselves and one another as the children of God. We have one Father. We are His children. We've all been adopted into His family. This ought to bring hope and encouragement to a people who need it. This ought to bring identity. But not only does it bring hope and and joy and praise, it also comes with a notion of, um, of bettering ourselves, of living up to the name. Um, in, another way to put this is, I'm going to throw two big words out here, but this is the Sunday night group. 
there is an indicative and there is an imperative. The indicative is the indication, the idea that's being mentioned. Father's love, we're his children. There's your indicative. He's indicating that identity. The imperative then is the command or the um, or the what well, you know, think of the word imperative. It is imperative. It's the obligation. And it doesn't have to be a burdensome obligation. If A, the indicative is true, then B, the imperative must follow. If we are his children, then here's what that means. And then he begins. He says, since we are his children, what we will be, verse 2, has not yet been made known. He's saying that there's a process here. Um, I want to go back to some of the things that we said last week because this ties this into chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, he speaks of an anointing. Okay? Uh, In verse, chapter 2, verse um, 27, he says, As for you, the anointing that you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. So when he gets to 3.1, uh, he's, he's talking about this anointing. And I think, you know, we said it's, it's not an anointing uh, by the Holy Spirit or of the Holy Spirit. It's just the anointing of the Holy One. And I think he's comparing it to the love of God. If that love of God is lavished on us, the way anointing oil is poured uh, you know, on the head of the one being anointed for all of those ordinary reasons like health, comfort, uh, grooming, whatever it may be. Here the idea is that his love is what anoints us, and so we remain in him, and now we have new identity. If we're remaining in him, then that family connection is as close as parent and child. So we're impressed by the manner of love that he's shown us, and it means a few things. Uh, First of all, it does, as we've already said, means that we're the children of God, but it also comes with the hope of what will be. This little phrase in verse 2, what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's the idea that you and I have not yet attained to the, uh, to the full measure of humanity. That there's a process here. Um, this is an indication from John that when Christ comes back, you and I are going to experience existence and humanity on a level that we can only imagine right now. Uh, the, you know... Our problem right now is not that we're fully human and we need to become something better or something greater than human. The fact of the matter is we're all experiencing humanity and we haven't been doing it very well. I've got a new analogy for this. 
So I'm listening to these stories that Michael Phelps is telling. You know, everybody's amazed that he's 31 years old and he's swimming, and it's like, wow, you know. And I've been knocking on the announcers because they're like, you know, oh, you can barely get out of the pool. I'm like, I'd like to see you go swim like that, you know. And you guys are just beating on him for not getting out of the pool very fast, you know. Hey, if I could swim like that, I'd get out of that pool. I'd let him drag me out of the pool. So it, it's kind of, it's, they're, they're just... They're, they're finding the, uh, the nitpicky stuff. But one of the things he said in an interview was he said, you know, and, and people are amazed that he's accomplishing what he's accomplishing. And he says, the, the way I've done it is as I've been, you know, he, he's, he's overcome a lot of problems. And he said, I have been submitting myself 100% to the training and I'm not cutting corners. Now that made me think that when he was younger, he was really good. And he was cutting corners on his training. If he hadn't been cutting corners when he was really good, who knows how great he could have been. But now he is disciplining himself. And he's amazing everyone. Who knows what it would have been like if he had been that disciplined when he was younger. But you see a process. You see growth there. You and I can discipline ourselves but we haven't fully experienced what humanity is really all about. I believe that that's why God takes on flesh and becomes Christ, and we see him and we experience him, is because he's coming to show us what righteous humanity really looks like. He's showing us how to be human, truly human the way God intended, not broken human, which is all we really experience on our own. And, and, and so... Here, John has this insight into what that sort of life looks like as we're on our way to becoming what we're meant to be. And he has to bring into the conversation then sin and lawlessness and purity and righteousness. So he says he has three things. Being a child of God means, first of all, it has something to do with purity. In verse 4, he says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. Sin is lawlessness, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one continues to, to sin. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And that can be challenging to read out right there. Purity is, um, is a lost concept sometimes. We... Uh, we tend to equate it just simply with um, sexual purity, but it's much more than that. It's the, it's the idea that we can be free of sin, of darkness, of deception. Um, for John, impurity will show up in our lack of love for God and our lack of love for one another. And impurity will be the sin that corrupts, the sin that, that stains and taints the goodness of God's creation. There's a view of sin that I, I think is very helpful in that sin is not something in and of itself. But sin is always the good things that God made, twisted and warped. And so nothing in and of itself can be sin, but sin's like a parasite, or sin is like a virus. Sin is like a corruption. You have something really wonderful, and then it gets warped or broken or corrupted in some way, and that's sin. If you think about it, 
all of the sins that we think of, the, 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 it's usually taking something good and distorting it away from God's purposes. So we, even things that we do well, even things that, that, uh, that, that we might be very talented with, those are the things that the devil can use against us. When, when Christ is tempted, he's not tempted to just let his hair down, let it all go, and just you know, throw himself into wild debauchery. He's actually being tempted with things that are not necessarily bad. It's the terms under which he's being asked to do them. Turn rocks into bread. What could be wrong with that? Really? What could be so wrong? I mean, if you could turn rocks into bread, you can feed hungry people. This could be a good thing. But Jesus is fasting. And he's putting his trust in God. Not his ability to use his authority for his own sake. There's an accountability there. Uh, you know, jump off the temple. Let the angels take care of you. Why not reveal your glory to everyone in that way? It'd make things simpler, wouldn't it? But again, Jesus is trusting that God will do this in his way, in his time. The, uh, you know, bow down and, and worship me and I'll give you all of these cities. Well, Jesus already has, he has the rights to all of those. He is the rightful ruler of all the lands on earth. But he'll not do it by giving in to Satan's will. He will be exalted in God's way on God's terms. This, I think, is the challenge for you and I. And, and through that temptation, Jesus proves himself to be pure. Because he does not take the good and warp it or twist it in any way. He does what Adam and Eve would not do, which is trust in God's boundaries and remain pure. So purity becomes an important part of our growth as his children. If we're going to be like Christ, then, then purity is something that we're not just going to work on, but it's something that's going to be at work within us. Um, the second thing to, uh, that, that he mentions is righteousness. Being a child of God means that there is going, we're going to be marked out by righteousness. He who does what is right is righteous, verse 7. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. <clears throat> that, that almost seems so simple as you know, you're asking yourself, why, is that e why does that even have to be mentioned? Well, because the righteousness that some are proposing to these, uh, to these Christians is a righteousness that's based on um, maybe thinking the right thing or maybe holding to certain rituals. And if we do those things, then that's really righteousness. That's what sets us right before God. But John is reminding them that the definition of righteousness doesn't have to be something difficult or something that's a part of code that it is simply doing the right thing and that that ability to make a moral decision and a moral judgment between right and wrong that's that's a gift of God's spirit I'm not saying that we can't know right from wrong without God's spirit that's not what I'm trying to say but I'm saying that here he's talking about a righteousness that comes as a natural part of being God's child. You know, it's like this statement that many parents have said that, uh, 
You know, you're a member of this family, and remember how we behave in this family. Remember who you are. In the family of God, we do what is right. We do it not just to get rewards, but we do it because that's righteousness. God's righteous. God is pure. So are we. Um, Sometimes we have a definition of righteousness that um, convinces us that we are failures before we even begin that uh, you know, we're never going to make it. And so uh, some of this language can, can make us nervous uh, if we take it fully as absolutes. And let, me, let me give you an example. Um, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Those who do not do what is right are not God's children. Have you ever done something that's not right? Well, of course you have. And John's already mentioned this in his letter. He says anyone who claims that they don't have sin makes God out to be a liar. Yes, <clears throat> we've all done something that's not right. But if you take that part of verse 10, those who do not do what is not right, or those who do, those who do not do what is right are not God's children. Boy, you could just, you could just condemn yourself all over the place there. John is not talking about particular instances. He's talking about the course of one's life, the intent and the decision to turn away from God's righteousness. Notice that um, he'll say at the end of that, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. You know, when, you, when you've made up your mind that you're just not going to be able to love other people and you're not even going to try, then yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a bad sign. I'm not saying that we're not saying it's hard. Some people make it hard to love them, okay? It just happens in this world. But as we grow and as we come to understand love and we, and we, you know, we behold what manner of love the Father has lavished onto us, We get convicted as we move along. But Paul must have in mind some people who have just abandoned all this. That they have their own definitions of right and wrong. And they're not based on who the Father is and what that makes them into. This is also the idea of being made into the likeness of Christ, of sharing in the divine nature. John says that acting righteous is not simply a matter. Let me put it like this. Righteousness can get boiled down to uh, performing certain actions. That when you look into the, the, the code book or the law book, these things are authorized, these things are not. So, so as long as we do all the, the right things, then we're okay. I've witnessed this over and over again. And uh, I've witnessed people who say, you know, listen... I know God's truth, and I know what God wants. He wants us to come to, and I'm creating a very generalized picture here. This isn't anyone in particular. But I've seen things like this where I'll see people who will say, um, I'm going to preach the truth. You know, it might be preachers, it might be church leaders, and they, and they say things like, we're, you know, we're, we take communion every Sunday. We were baptized by immersion. We go to church every Sunday. We don't use instrumental music, so this makes us right. And then they'll express hatred towards other people, or they will be insulting towards other people. What excuse do you get to do that? 
just because you do all of these right actions, this is the kind of, of attitude that John is up against when he says, if you're going to be righteous, then do the right thing. Don't just fulfill a few visible practices and think that that makes you okay. Do the right thing. You've got to live it out. You, if, if, you're going to, you know, if you're going to say that, that, that you know, what, singing is pure when it's a cappella and, and uh, the, the communion, we're going to take that every, every Lord's Day and then baptism is immersion into Christ. Okay, I agree with all those things. But what do those things lead us to? What do those things mean? How do those things show up in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we live, in the way that we make choices about our life? You can't just do those things and not be affected by them. It all has meaning. It's all connected. This is what John is getting at. It's, it's very similar to what Paul says in Colossians when he says certain things have a form of godliness but they offer nothing for restraining sinful desires. Uh, John's right there along with Paul. Same idea. The third thing that John mentions is renouncing sin. And this is the thing uh, in verse 9. Those who are born of God will not continue to sin because God's... Now, here the idea is not you're never going to sin again. And I know that this verse has been twisted to mean, well, see, if you're really God's child, then nothing you can do is ever a sin. That's not what this means. What this means is we will not continue in the way of sin. We will not embrace sin. We will not accept sin. He's already discussed what it means for for, uh, the ones who are walking in the light to sin. This is where he talks about the sins that, there are sins that lead to death, but I'm not talking about those kind of sins. Okay, these are the sins that... Those who continue in the way of sin cannot go, you know, if if you're going to be God's child, if God's seed is in you, then you're not going to go on in that way. You're going to turn away from it. And I think this is where we've, we've, we've lost something with this idea of we no longer renounce the devil or renounce evil. When I was doing all this uh, study for the, um, uh, joining the resistance, you know, turning away, making a decision to say no to sinfulness. I mean, it's not just enough to say, oh, well, I'm a sinner. Say no to it. Say no to sin. Turn your back on it. So there's this amazing scene in The Godfather where, um, I don't know if I'm supposed to recommend that movie or not. Hey, it's a movie. Okay, it's out there. But anyway, so Michael Corleone at the end is, you know, being asked to be the godfather at his child's, uh, you know, his, or his nephew's baptism. And then the, the priest is saying, you know, do you renounce Satan, Michael? And, uh, and he says, I do. And then, of course, all of his evil deeds are just, you know, happening at the same time. It's hypocrisy, and it's a great image of hypocrisy. We've just sort of dismissed that idea. I mean, when you actually have to say no to sin and renounce it, then you start to think twice. Because what you've done is you've labeled certain things as sin. I mean, if you find that your heart is often filled with anger or hatred, and you're saying, I I just can't get over it. It's just there. It's just really hard to love people. Okay, I tell you what. Why don't you begin by saying no to anger and hatred? Why don't you start saying no to that, push back, and fight against that? See what that does. Here, John is saying that we will not continue in the way of sin. We will renounce it. He's saying you need to choose a side. It's going to be light. It's going to be darkness. Choose a side. 
No one born of God continues to sin. You are born of God. You must not go on sinning. He's saying this is not the way we behave. So we act as though um, God sometimes is unfair or he's stacked the game, that he's told us to play by rules that we can't meet up with. But that's not God. That's some of our broken ideas about Christianity. You know, I'm afraid I'm going to mess up and there will be something left on the ledger and I'm going to get to the day of judgment and God's going to say, oh, we forgot to take care of I'm sorry, you're going to hell on a technicality. That, that doesn't happen. That's nowhere in Scripture. That's an administrative view of Christianity that just isn't biblical. Instead, what you see is that um, sin is something that as we grow, we turn away from it because we realize it's not good. It really is foolishness. The biblical word that you often see is folly. That sounds a bit decorative. It just means stupidity. That when, when we sin, we're actually sawing the branch that supports us. And I think this is why sometimes, and, you know, in, in church leadership too, but with our friends, we sometimes get frustrated with them. And let's just admit it. Because we see them continuing to do stuff that just isn't helping them. And we want to tell them, you need to quit doing this. And that's when we really need to pray, and that's when we need to learn to talk honestly and openly with one another. Um, Sin, now think about it. This This is the way John has pictured sin for us. You've got light, and there's the Father. You've got darkness, which tracks away from the Father. Sin... Then, in its, in its largest sense, is walking away from the light, walking away from the blessings, the love of God that he's lavished on us, and it's moving towards this darkness. Now, does that not seem ridiculous? It's the, it's the idea that it's like every, someone this morning uh, mentioned this to me. We were talking about it, and we said, you know, I mean, here, in the, we've got everything. It's just going so well in the Garden of Eden, and it's like, you know, hey, we've got a good setup here. There's some boundaries. Just understand this. But other than that, you're good. We're human. God's here. And then they believe this lie. You know, we can upgrade. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because um, everything's working just fine. I actually had a conversation like that with my father-in-law recently. He said, hey, my computer keeps telling me to upgrade to Windows 10. Don't do it. Don't do it. Is your computer working fine? Yeah, it's working fine. Leave it alone. Well, okay. I said, just leave it alone. It's not equipped for that. And Adam and Eve should have known that. Hey, we're not equipped for that, okay? <clears throat> and we, we, we really are unfair with Adam and Eve because they're us. I mean, they're us. Sometimes we want to, you know, tackle the upgrade. I'll handle it. I won't bother God with this. <laughs> Maybe you should bother God with this. It would be better for all of us. I should bother God with it. It'd be better for all of us. It'd be better for me. This was the spirit behind, uh, you know, everybody, a lot of what we believe about Satan and hell comes from uh, a book by uh, John Milton, Paradise Lost. And some people view Satan as kind of a hero in that story, that he's this kind of this rebel. He's, you know, he's not going to, he's not going to just listen to God. He's going to do his own thing. And and that really wasn't what Milton was trying to do. He was trying to show everybody that Satan was this, ridiculous destructive fool 
that it's like everything's fine. And so in that last scene when he says, uh, you know, it's better to, to reign in hell than to serve in heaven, or I actually don't remember where that is in the book, but it's in, you know, it's in there, and then, you know, it gets quoted in movies all the time. It's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Milton intended that to be not some proud anthem of re- rebelliousness. He meant for that to sound ridiculous. It's like, you want to be king of a burning garbage heap? You want to be the lord of a dumpster fire when you could be celebrated in heaven? You know, you could be celebrating in heaven. The counter to that is the story of the prodigal son. That this boy who has rejected his father and said, I wished you were dead, give me my fortune, and then he goes out and squanders it and does, the, does the, all the wrong things, he comes to his senses and he says, it would be better to be the lowest slave in my father's house than to be out here because he knows that even the worst servants in his father's house are treated better than some independent rogue who's gone out there and squandered everything. That is what it looks like to turn back towards the light. And really, what he ends up thinking that he can't ever have, I mean, when, in, in the story of the prodigal son, when that boy goes back, he never at one instant assumes that he will be restored as a son to the father. That's not even possible. Because in their thinking, he had renounced all that. He had left all that. He had rejected it. The father, uh, because of public shame, would never accept him back. That's why it's so amazing when the father runs out there, gives him the ring, gives him the robe, accepts him back. It's scandalous. That's why the older son runs in and says, what do you think you're doing? He's got to be taught a lesson. Next thing you know, all children will be doing this. And then you hear the words of John just kind of playing in the background. Look at what love the Father has just lavished on us. That we should be called his children. That's who you are. You're his children. So what does that mean? Let's find out. As we sing this next song, uh, communion is prepared for those who need to take it. And then uh, after that, Lowell Eford will dismiss us in prayer.